Hello, and welcome to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. I am Kevin Yan, one of the PGY-3s in neurology, and I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Adam Jasny, to discuss quick facts in vascular neurology as part of our quick facts series. Longtime listeners will probably recognize Dr. Jasny from his excellent Stroke of the Young podcast episode that he did about a year ago with Aaron Bauer. Dr. Jasny, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. I, I think stroke by its nature is a good target for quick talks. We, we tend to be we tend to have to think quick, right? Yeah, absolutely. The focus of this episode is really going to be on some facts that we think are going to be testable. I will say that because of that, this is less relevant to uh, everyday clinical practice, but I think we're going to really try to focus on things that we think are particularly important to remember in terms of vascular neurology. To begin with, I think it's always important as neurologists to have a strong background in neuroanatomy. So in terms of vascular neurology, that really begins with the vascular anatomy. So Dr. Jasny, do you mind running us through the rough outlines of the vascular supplies of the brain? (laughs) (laughs) Happy to do so. Challenging topic on a podcast, right? It's something that definitely benefits from a visual aid and something that for our purposes, you know, we're going to kind of assume an idealized or a standardized circle of Willis, for example, Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of the population doesn't necessarily have that. There are a lot of common variants, more variability in the venous system than the arterial system, actually. But what we're thinking about in general, vascular supply to the brain is generally through the carotid arteries anteriorly and the vertebral arteries posteriorly. In the anterior circulation, typically speaking, your left common carotid is going to come immediately off of your aortic arch, whereas your right common carotid comes off the brachiocephalic. As you move superiorly, your common carotid arteries bifurcate into internal and external carotid arteries. Very pimpable question there. We don't do pimping anymore, but a very pimpable question, a very testable, askable question that you tend to have early branches off of the external carotid artery, whereas the internal carotid artery doesn't have those until you get intracranially. There is a lot of individual variability in the course of these vessels, so you can't necessarily rely on anterior, posterior, medial, or lateral. It really is where does it end up and how does it branch. There are different divisions. Typically, you might hear about seven different divisions for the internal carotid artery. The segments that you might hear us talking about may be testable. And then as you get intracranial, you hit the circle of Willis. Posteriorly, you've got the vertebral arteries that come together in the back of the brain to form the basilar artery, really the one place in the body, two arteries come together to form one. Typically, off of your vertebral arteries come your picas, your posterior inferior cerebellar arteries. Typically, off of the proximal basilar, you've got your aicas, your anterior inferior cerebellar arteries. Basilar continues on along your brainstem and then lets out superior cerebellar arteries proximal to the takeoff of the posterior cerebral arteries. And you've got your circle of laws. Excellent (laughs) summary, Dr. Jasny. We've talked about the branches of the basilar artery. Do you mind reviewing for our listeners the four main branches off the internal carotid artery? All right. So, Kevin, thank you for the question. As we were briefly discussing offline, it really depends on what level of detail you want to go into. Yeah, I think for our listeners, it would be prudent to remember the four main branches classically that we think of coming off of the internal carotid artery. First, you have the ophthalmic artery, which is the first branch of the internal carotid artery, and it's already an intracranial branch. Next, you have the posterior communicating artery, the PCOM, which is commonly implicated in compressive lesions of cranial nerve 3. 
Next, you have the anterior choroidal artery, and lastly, the internal carotid artery ends at the middle cerebral artery. A mnemonic that we sometimes use that can be helpful is OPAM for ophthalmic, PCOM, anterior choroidal, and middle cerebral artery. Thank you, Kevin. And in addition to there being additional branches we might not always talk about, this is an area where in real-world practice there is significant variability. For example, in the takeoff of the anterior choroidal or the presence or absence or prominence of a posterior communicating artery. And now we're in the circle of Willis, which I think most of our listeners will be very familiar with from having taken a look at many vessel imaging studies over the course of their training. This is where I think it's helpful just to roughly divide the brain into the anterior and posterior circulation so that we have at least some general outline in our heads. So in broad outlines, we can talk about the three main vessel supplies, the anterior cerebral artery, the middle cerebral artery, and the posterior cerebral artery. So maybe we should start at the front and go with the anterior cerebral artery. Anterior cerebral artery, as its name implies, is part of the anterior circulation. The anterior circulation is what you would classically expect to be supplied by the internal carotid arteries and their subsequent branches, the middle cerebral and anterior cerebral arteries primarily. The anterior cerebral artery will classically be kind of this strip along the frontal and superior aspect of the brain. So infarcts of this area or damage to this area commonly associated with leg weakness more than arm weakness, which is unusual for other stroke syndromes. There are also other features that may be present, such as abulia, such as urinary incontinence, things like that are sometimes tested as we think about the anterior cerebral artery. Great. And next we come to the middle cerebral artery, probably the one that most of our listeners are most familiar with. We all know the classic middle cerebral artery presentation, especially the whole middle cerebral artery presentation, whether gaze deviation, facial droop, hemiplegia, sensory loss, neglect versus aphasia, depending on which side you hit. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about the aphasia syndromes and the divisions of the middle cerebral artery? There's a lot to unpack in that question. There's a whole number of subsets of aphasia syndromes. I try to avoid eponyms, I think, for the purposes of testing and even for thinking. So rather than saying Broca's or Wernicke's, we might talk about expressive versus receptive aphasia. We might talk about transcortical aphasias, where repetition mm -hmm. is generally spared, and those are unusual presentations. I will say that oftentimes in the acute setting, most aphasias are going to be mixed. There are both expressive and receptive components. So it may not help you localize to frontal versus parietal as well as you might expect. There are superior and inferior divisions to the middle cerebral artery, the M2s kind of classically as we're thinking about them, that have their own downstream territories. Kevin, would you mind telling us about the superior MCA versus the inferior MCA divisions? Yeah, so classically the M2 branches of the middle cerebral artery, the superior division will go to Broca's area or will cause this expressive aphasia in the frontal lobe, whereas the inferior division is going to cause the Wernicke's or receptive aphasia. There are lots of variants, but thinking about the aphasia syndromes in that kind of framework should allow our listeners to solve whatever problems they're given for test-taking purposes. And just to mention that the transcortical motor aphasias are the ones that are similar to Broca's or expressive aphasia. 
I yeah. think, I mean, transcortical motor, motor is kind of the expressive yeah. side. Broca's being frontal is more motor, correct? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, transcortical motor is like that, but with the repetition being the atypical feature of it, yeah. as the, opposed to transcortical sensory. Which would be more consistent with the Wernicke's or receptive aphasia. And that's, I think, how I sorted out in my mind, associating motor with expression and sensory with reception. Which makes sense based on our neuroanatomy as mm -hmm. well. Frontal, we associate more with primary motor, accessory motor. And parietal is more the sensory, the post-central things, right? Yep. Similar to Broca's and Wernicke's. While we're on the subject, if you don't mind, Kevin, if we think about the frontal eye fields, just as we're talking about these mm -hmm. localizations, I think a lot of people overthink this. But the simplest question that I can ask is, what is the job of the frontal eye fields, Kevin? What do they tell us to do? The job of a frontal eye field just tells your eyes to go in the opposite direction. Look away. Look away, look away from me. So yeah. the right frontal eye field says, don't look at me. Look to the left. And so if it is hypoactive from a stroke, your eyes will be deviated towards the area of the lesion. Just knowing the function, the anatomic function of that region, I think helps people not to overthink, uh, all right, are the eyes looking at the lesion or the weakness or where are they supposed to be, right? Just knowing how it works. Great, so that's the outline of the middle cerebral artery. So now we'll move on towards the last but not least of the main cerebral arteries, the posterior cerebral artery. Well, Kevin, we're oversimplifying it by just talking about three, <laughs> but for the exam purposes, I'll let it slide. Posterior cerebral artery is going to supply an area uh, largely of the occipital lobe in the posterior aspect of the brain. In our typical complete circle of Willis, we're going to think about the posterior cerebral artery as a posterior circulation supply. However, in what we call a fetal PCA, which is anatomic variant, a normal anatomic variant, in which the P1 segment, the first segment of the posterior cerebral artery, is absent, that means that the PCOM, the posterior communicating artery, has the job of supplying that area, which means that it is anterior circulation. I think that's important to know that that is a thing that can happen. The posterior cerebral artery is often what we most associate with, for example, a homonymous hemianopsia, a visual field deficit. One of the other arteries that I wanted to talk about is the recurrent artery of Hubner, H-E-U-B-N-E-R, which is named for a German pediatrician in the 18 and 1900s. I apologize to our German listeners who might know how to actually pronounce that. <laughs> so Dr. Jasny, do you mind telling us a little bit about the recurrent artery of Hubner? I don't think that it's super commonly seen in clinical practice as an affected artery, but it may be something that appears on your stroke, and I think mostly I associate it with the head of the caudate, a lesion that spares a lot of the rest of the basal ganglia but affects the head of the caudate might come from the recurrent artery of Hubner, which is not always but often a branch off of the anterior cerebral artery. And I think that's important just to remember that we have a little bit of anterior cerebral artery in the basal ganglia through this, whereas most of the rest of the basal ganglia we typically associate with things like the lenticulostriate branches off of the middle cerebral artery. I think that's fair to say, as long as we emphasize that they are these nameless lenticulostriate branches. So in most cases, if it's a small vessel stroke of the basal ganglia, I would just call it a lacunar stroke or a small vessel stroke. I wouldn't call it a middle cerebral artery stroke. Yeah, I think that's very fair. The next artery that I think would be helpful to touch on is the artery of Percheron, which is not really an artery. It's more of an anatomic variant. Would you say that's fair, Dr. Jasny? That is absolutely correct, Kevin. There's not an artery named an artery of Percheron so much as Percheron described 
variant anatomy such that both thalami are supplied by a single supply as opposed to bilateral supply becomes relevant in the cases where somebody has ischemia or some other injury that then takes out both thalami and can significantly impact their consciousness, for example. Yeah, and you know, bilateral thalamic lesions are one of those rabbit holes in neurology that we'll leave for a future episode. So I think that's a pretty good overview of the arterial supply of the brain for the purposes of what we think would be high yield on a right exam. Next, I think because we are talking about strokes, it would be helpful to quickly review for our listeners the different etiologies of, we'll stick with ischemic stroke for now. And we have a very nice acronym that was developed, I think, in the 1980s or 1990s called the TOAST criteria. Could you give us a quick rundown of the five TOAST criteria, Dr. Jasny? Yes and no. Yes and no. So I guess the 80s and the 90s might be the same to you, but uh, I might be dating myself here. Actually, TOAST was a trial of a particular drug, and the trial ended up not being successful. But the criteria they used were a very useful scaffolding for how do we build our concept of stroke pathophysiology. Large artery atherosclerosis, so something like artery to artery from a carotid or intracranial atherosclerotic disease. We think of cardioembolism. Think of small vessel ischemic disease, small vessel strokes. A stroke of some other etiology. We know what the etiology is, but it's different than these kind of typical big buckets. And a stroke of uncertain etiology, which if there was a thorough evaluation, we might term a cryptogenic stroke. Those are the five criteria that TOAST uses. Ultimately, what we think a stroke is most likely to be caused by really just is determined by the pattern on MRI and the other supporting facts that we see. I did want to quickly talk about the secondary prevention of stroke, depending on what etiology we think this is due to. So first, Dr. Jasny, I think the big one, anticoagulants. What would we use anticoagulation for in the secondary prevention of stroke? Most commonly, we'd be using anticoagulation for the secondary prevention of stroke in atrial fibrillation. In other situations, we might use it if somebody has a known or suspected hypercoagulable state. Those are two of our main reasons we would use that. I think the most common that we see now are the ones that end in XABAN, things like apixaban or rivaroxaban. Edoxaban is also out there, but I don't think we use it as much, at least in our clinical setting. I think that's fair to say. They very helpfully have the XA in the name, so they are factor 10A or XA, if you were to write it out, inhibitors. Another thing that we used to see pretty commonly, not so much now that we have the newer agents, would be Coumadin or Warfarin. Warfarin is a vitamin K-based as opposed to the 10A, the direct 10A inhibitors that you were just talking about. It impacts a number of the different factors. In particular, the early impacts on protein C and S are why we have to bridge for warfarin therapy. It used to be the most commonly used anticoagulant altogether, including for DVTs or for atrial fibrillation. Now it is less commonly used for those indications because of the convenience and understood safety profiles of the direct oral anticoagulants, but there are still certain circumstances in which Coumadin is preferred. In particular, you might see those in mechanical valves, especially mechanical mitral valves, or in patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, especially triple positive antiphospholipid Mm -hmm. antibody syndrome. There are some other situations in which it would be a preferred agent as well. 
And I think for test-taking purposes, the important thing to remember for warfarin is that it has a lot of drug interactions from things that either will upregulate or downregulate its efficacy, as well as you have to eat roughly the same amount of vitamin K. Though I just tell my patients, don't go on spinach binges. A to eat, but eat a consistent amount. We've talked about the direct 10A inhibitors, things like Eliquis, Apixaban, or Xarelto, Rivaroxaban. We don't use this that much here, but there is one indirect factor 10A inhibitor that would be worth mentioning, and that's Fonda Paranux, right? That is correct. Just a little bit earlier in the pathway, used in certain clinical circumstances, but not routinely our first-line therapy for stroke prevention. And lastly, we have the direct thrombin inhibitors. I believe these are actually used more in California, so maybe our listeners on the West Coast can chime in and tell us what their typical agents are. But what are the main direct thrombin inhibitors that we might use? Dabigatran is the main one. You might also see Argatraban and Bivalrudin as well in different clinical contexts. And those are direct thrombin inhibitors. Slightly further along on your coagulation cascade than heparin and low molecular weight heparin, which are indirect thrombin inhibitors. And if I may, Kevin, just one more thing is that there are certain specific and nonspecific reversal agents for these medications that you may be tested on as well. And Dexanet-alpha, for example, for your 10A inhibitors, and the monoclonal antibody formerly known as Praxbind is the generic for that one. It's Adaracuzumab. So anticoagulants, at least now, our listeners who are really involved in stroke research might be pounding on the door shouting Arcadia, but at least now, anticoagulants are only really indicated for confirmed atrial fibrillation or for something like a hypercoagulability disorder, a deep vein thrombosis, or a mechanical heart valve. I think in general, that's correct. There were some recent trials such as Navigate ESUS and Respect ESUS, E-S-U-S at the end of those being embolic appearing stroke of undetermined source. And those found that if you take all comers who have a cryptogenic stroke, even if that cryptogenic stroke looks embolic, the risk benefit for empiric anticoagulation in that patient population is not favorable. That may change with the study that you mentioned called Arcadia, looking at atrial cardiopathy, left atrial dilation, but we haven't seen the results yet, so we don't Mm -hmm. know. Next, we have our antiplatelet agents. Though I think there's only a few main ones that we'll commonly see in neurology, though of course there are more out there. The main antiplatelet agent that we have in our arsenal is aspirin, which is a permanent irreversible COX or cyclooxygenase inhibitor. The other main antiplatelet agents that we commonly see, the two main ones are Plavix or Clopidogrel and Brilenta, which is a Ticagrelor. Those are both P2Y12 inhibitors, which I think that's unfortunately something that we all just have to commit to memory. I think it's important to note there's a glycoprotein 2B3A pathway for platelet activation and adherence. P2Y12 is relevant to that as a component of that for clopidogrel, ticagrelor, and prasugrel as well. There are other agents as well that, for example, IV medications that might be relevant for that. And it may pay for our listeners to even look at a a detailed diagram describing clopidogrel's action with ADP versus other medications' actions on different parts of this pathway, different parts of this cascade. I think looking at it visually, though, might be the best Mm -hmm. way to describe that. 
And another antiplatelet agent, I think, is more commonly seen in the peripheral vascular disease community than it is in neurology. It's silostazole or pletol, for those of you who prefer brand names. Mm -hmm. That's also an antiplatelet agent. I think it works quite well in neurology when we have patients who are on that anyway, but it's not something that we would typically prescribe. I would say that that is, as of your test-taking purposes, that is often the case. It is being studied with increasing frequency. There are studies ongoing in Japan and the U.S., for example, that have looked at this in certain disease states, such as moi-moi disease, or in stroke prevention in general. And it may be an option that we see more of in the future. Similar to another PDE inhibitor, which is dipyrinamol, which we don't use as much. You might see that in Agronox, is the brand name, but we don't use that as much in the U.S. because it has a limiting side effect of pretty significant headaches associated with its vasodilatory capabilities. Mm. But it is a pretty effective component to an antithrombotic regimen. And I do recall being tested about, we don't use this medication. Why don't we use it? And I found that to be a challenging question. So it might be good to know, for example, for aspirin dipyridamol combination. Mm. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. And just for just to spell it out, PDE here stands for phosphodiesterase. So those are the main antiplatelet agents that we would typically use. So now we can talk about when we would use one, when we would use two, and how long we would use two. Yeah, and this may be another question where the clinical practice varies a little bit from the test question, but they might leave it open for you. I would say in general, for stroke patients, our long-term solution is a single therapy, antiplatelet or anticoagulation. It would be very rare for there to be a concrete indication for long-term dual antiplatelet therapy, long-term being months to years, for stroke prevention. Possible exceptions to that might be somebody who has a certain type of stent, for example, a carotid or a coronary stent that requires it longer term. There are trials that have come out recently, in particular point and chance, which have demonstrated the benefit for a short period of dual antiplatelet therapy. Also, THALES is a trial that came out recently for another type of dual antiplatelet. And what we would typically do with these is for appropriately selected patients, those are typically patients with a high-risk TIA, a high-risk transient ischemic attack, defined as an ABCD squared score of at least four, or for a mild stroke, a stroke with an NIH stroke scale of three or less, I believe, we might consider a short course of dual antiplatelet therapy. For the trial, for POINT, for example, that was a three-month period, but really the main benefit was seen in the first three to four weeks. So our common clinical practice might be for appropriately selected patients with a high-risk TIA or a mild ischemic stroke to consider a three- or four-week course of dual antiplatelet therapy for that early secondary prevention benefit. And I think it bears saying that CHANCE, the trial that really looked at this and had the strong positive effect, was a study that was done in China. So that's just one of the other things for our listeners, that if you see that, that's one of the clues that maybe they're talking about this in particular. Of course, in clinical practice, I don't think we make that determination. We just give the dual antiplatelet therapy for all comers. But that's a relevant thing for the test. Epidemiologically speaking, we do know there are different patterns of atherosclerosis and different hemorrhagic risks in different populations, this being one distinction that you mm -hmm. mentioned. 
but certainly with the advent of point and other more recent trials demonstrating that in the U.S. population, for example, the risk-benefit is favorable, I think that the need to specify that in a test question becomes less relevant. And the other thing that we sometimes use dual antiplatelet therapy for is intracranial atherosclerotic disease, ICAD. The duration of this tends to be a little more open-ended, and I think it's maybe a little less amenable to a clear-cut question on the exam. But in general, Dr. Jasny, what would you guide our listeners? I would say for the purposes of your exam, our clinical guidelines do say that for stroke felt to be caused by intracranial atherosclerotic disease, a 90-day course, a three-month course of dual antiplatelet with aspirin plus clopidogrel is a reasonable option. And so that would be a reasonable thing for you to answer in clinical practice or on your exams, perhaps. There are those who do not feel as strongly about those data coming from a trial looking at intracranial stenting versus maximal medical therapy, but I think that's beyond the scope of this mm -hmm. talk. And so typically, antiplatelets are going to be one pillar of our stroke prevention regimen, or if they have a clear indication for anticoagulation, that would substitute for the antiplatelet. The other main pillar that we have is reduction of cholesterol. And the main medications that we use for that is something from the statin family. I think after someone has had an ischemic event, either suspected or confirmed, we usually go for the high-intensity statins, which currently the main ones are Lipitor, which is atorvastatin, or Crest which is rosuvastatin. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the LDL goal, for example, and their mechanism of action? Yeah, uh, statins are HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. We don't need to get into too much of the weeds, I think, beyond that. There's a whole spectrum of statins as far as their intensities, as well as their hydrophilicity versus their lipophilicity that I don't know would be relevant either, but are interesting. Often after a stroke, somebody might be empirically started on a high-potency statin, which is typically a torvastatin 40 to 80 or rosuvastatin 40. Longer term, as we're thinking about things, there are three different targets we might have. For somebody who has stroke that's due to just atherosclerosis, we might favor a high-potency statin regardless of their LDL, of their low-density lipoprotein. For patients on the other end of the spectrum whose stroke is not due to atherosclerotic disease and have few atherosclerotic risk factors, our LDL target might be less than 100. For those who have at least two vascular risk factors, our LDL target might be less than 70. Certainly, diet, more fiber, less saturated fat, exercise, those can help with these. Statins tend to have a larger numeric effect and may also have some secondary, some pleiotropic benefits in smoothing plaque out. There are some patients for whom we can't reach our targets of LDL with statin therapy alone or who can't tolerate statins because of adverse effects such as liver enzyme elevations or myalgias, uh, myopathies. For those patients, Kevin, what treatments might we be able to offer? So in the outpatient setting, we do have Zetia or Izetamibe, which is less helpful for low-density lipoprotein specifically, and is more of a general hyperlipidemia agent. There's also the infusion agents such as PCSK9 inhibitors. These are monoclonal antibodies typically given through injection. Those are expensive and can be challenging to get approval for, but are additionally effective at lowering LDL in somebody for whom statins alone are inadequate or statins are contraindicated or not tolerated. So that's the general outline for stroke prevention and just remembering the anticoagulants, their mechanisms, the antiplatelet agents, their mechanisms, 
the statins and its mechanism plus side effects, I think is going to be very helpful for our listeners on the exams. The next thing I wanted to talk about, because this is something that seems to get tested on a pretty regular basis, is the exact criteria for acute stroke therapies. I'm sure our listeners are well aware that in the first few hours of a suspected stroke, that is when we can offer most of our intervention. The first one is intravenous thrombolytic therapy with tissue plasminogen activator, or TPA. The exact TPA will, I think, depend on the hospital system that you practice in, but common ones seen nationwide, I believe, are altoplase and tenecteplase. Taking a step back, I would say that of the tissue plasminogen activators, the recombinant tissue plasminogen activators, Altaplace is FDA approved for use in acute ischemic stroke, and Tenecteplase is not currently. Many institutions are moving to it. Data are supportive of that, but if we're going by the books, it's worth noting that as well. Similarly, as you had said, this is a very time-sensitive process. Sooner is better for thrombolytic therapy or any kind of acute stroke intervention. The FDA approves Altaplace up to three hours from last well, from the time somebody was last their usual self. Many clinical institutions will offer that medication up to four and a half hours from the time somebody was last well, or in some cases, for example, might use MR imaging for wake-up strokes. These are things that are considered reasonable in clinical practice by our guidelines, but I don't know if there would be a question formed on that based on your exam. You were asking, though, Kevin, about the TPA exclusion criteria, and essentially what we think about, we talk about TPA as a clot-busting medication, likely to break down clots in the body. The biggest risk I worry about is bleeding. There is a risk of a distributive shock, an anaphylactic-type picture, that is temporized, you can treat, and it it rarely happens, but maybe worth knowing about that happening with TPA. But generally speaking, bleeding is the big risk I worry about. And I'm balancing the anticipated benefit in acute ischemic stroke versus the bleeding risk, especially intracranial bleeding or gastrointestinal bleeding. So anything that might make me worry more about bleeding in that individual would end up being a contraindication to TPA. I would advise our listeners to look at the most recent clinical guidelines, even have them handy for reference when they're on the stroke service, for example, so they can understand specifically. But in general, we're looking at somebody might be excluded if they had a history of an intracranial hemorrhage, if they have had recent GI bleeding, recent surgery, recent arterial puncture at a non-compressible site, if they're on an anticoagulant, if they're on warfarin with an INR of greater than 1.7, if they have platelet count of less than 100,000. Those would be our bleeding contraindications for TPA. In addition, we have certain clinical guidelines for blood pressure and for other things that need to happen before we give somebody TPA. Can you remind us, Kevin, a little bit about our blood pressure? Yeah, so the current guidelines say that before you administer TPA, you have to have a systolic blood pressure of less than 185 and a diastolic pressure of less than 110. And it's important to remember both of them. I know that I certainly, a lot of the time, will just look at the systolic number and disregard the diastolic number. But both are important, both for the purposes of taking the test and when you're actually practicing stroke neurology. After you administer TPA, I'm not sure if this is going to be tested, but it is important to remember that the blood parameter guidelines actually change. Both numbers are 5 
less. So the systolic blood pressure goal now is less than 180 after you administer TPA, and the diastolic is less than 105 after you administer TPA. So before TPA, less than 185 over 110. During and after TPA, less than 180 over 105. And that 180 over 105 becomes our strict limit, systolic and diastolic, for at least the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And there's two pieces of data that we have to gather before we can administer TPA. Oftentimes, we're going to get more than just these two basic ones. But by the book, the two ones that we need are a dry CT head. And the purpose of that is to make sure that the patient's symptoms are not due to an intracranial hemorrhage and that there's not already a large territory stroke because that would portend a high hemorrhage risk. The other one that is really important that sometimes might get forgotten about is you need a finger stick glucose. And the reason for this is that hypoglycemia can mimic basically anything, including a lot of stroke syndromes. I can tell you anecdotally, I had a patient that I was convinced had a clear left MCA stroke syndrome whose blood glucose turned out to be 19, and after we gave them a push of D50, completely went back to normal. So it does happen in real life, and it is really important to remember. I think that's fair to say. Glucose is one of the strictly necessary tests for everybody who comes in with concern for a stroke. And depending on the practice environment, you likely will have other pieces of data, most likely vessel imaging with a CT angiography of the head and neck. But strictly speaking, that is not necessary to administer TPA if you have a clinical suspicion of stroke and they meet all the other criteria. So I think we can move on to talking about a few of the vasculopathies. We talked a lot about the most common vasculopathy, which is atherosclerosis. One that I've seen multiple questions about is the very nicely named condition CADASIL, which stands for Cerebral Autosomal Dominant Arteriopathy with Subcortical Infarcts and Leukoencephalopathy. Is that right, Dr. Jasny? I'm just double-checking your work right here. Always good to have a reference available to check. Yeah, so the name actually tells you a lot about the condition. It's an autosomal dominant. It's an arteriopathy, and it primarily causes subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy. So there's a classic gene that we associate with Catacil. And what's that gene, Dr. Jasny? It's the Notch 3 gene on chromosome 19. We are learning more about different mutations that can happen on this gene, but I don't know they would get into that level of detail on your exam. And the typical clinical scenario that they might give us is someone who's usually going to be in their 40s or 50s, I think is fair, Dr. Jasny. That's when we commonly see symptom onset. Other key factors are that there's a strong association with headaches, particularly migraineous type headaches, and they probably will mention something about cognitive changes because that's one of the key factors of catacil is that you're going to have these early dementia syndromes. I think that's fair to say. Imaging-wise, they might give you a disproportionate amount of white matter disease, more than you would expect for the patient's age and risk factor burden. And in particular, you might find some anterior temporal predominance of these white matter changes. And one last thing about Catacil that they might ask about on the test is that there's a specific place that we typically biopsy when we go looking for the Notch 3 gene mutation, and it's typically in the skin. Because you can find this mutation in arterioles, essentially, getting a skin biopsy can be useful without having to do other types of testing, essentially. Mm. 
There is an autosomal recessive cousin of Catacil called Caracil, cerebral Aptly autosom- named. Yeah. Aptly named. <laughs> Unlike Press, for example, which may be less aptly named. Which all it does is change the dominant to a recessive. This is much rarer, but typically will present similarly to Catacil. I think for test-taking purposes, it should be assumed that we're dealing with Catacil. Another arteriopathy that we should probably talk about is cerebral amyloid angiopathy going a little bit in the different end of that spectrum Mm -hmm. and not related as much as we might think to other things with amyloid in the name and things like that, I would say. Cerebral amyloid angiopathy is a progressive syndrome, typically affects older individuals with essentially amyloid deposition in arterial walls that leads to some leaky blood vessels. What we might classically see is somebody who is in their 70s plus minus with some cognitive decline over time. And this is a not uncommon cause of low bar hemorrhage in this patient population. Imaging-wise, we might find such a low bar hemorrhage. We might find innumerable, too many to count, micro-hemorrhages, teeny tiny areas of blooming artifact on susceptibility-weighted imaging, or T2 star GRE, which is less sensitive. We might find innumerable micro-hemorrhages. Classically, more superficially, because classically the deep structures might be more associated with hypertensive hemorrhages. In addition, superficial siderosis, deposition of iron along the surface of the brain that you can also see on these heme-sensitive sequences is associated strongly with amyloid angiopathy as well. There is the modified Boston criteria that can help guide our diagnosis based on imaging and symptomatology. I think it's Maybe not helpful to know, but uh, it is true that I think the only definitive way to diagnose cerebral amyloid angiopathy is with tissue sampling. That is correct. Technically, for a definitive diagnosis, a brain biopsy is needed per these criteria, but there is a spectrum of suspicion that we might have for cerebral amyloid angiopathy based on Boston criteria or clinical judgment. And I think the main way that this is likely to be tested for is someone will come in with multiple lobar hemorrhages, probably spanning several years, and it's going to be an older individual. So that should really key us into the fact that they're getting at cerebral amyloid angiopathy as maybe the underlying etiology. There are other vasculopathies that we should think about, for example, vessel dissection, which is commonly associated with neck manipulation or other kinds of endothelial wall injury. I think radiation is a common one. And there are certain conditions that are associated with accelerated atherosclerosis as well, such as HIV classically. I think just remembering those associations would be really helpful for our listeners. I think it's worth noting dissection is not through and through the entire vessel wall, but is the intimal level, as you had mentioned, the intimal layer, as you had mentioned. It can be spontaneous or provoked, and in some cases, perhaps associated with a connective tissue disorder, but not usually. I don't imagine your test would ask you the best treatment modality for dissection because there is clinical debate about that. They might ask you if there's a dissection that extends intradurally. I would probably avoid anticoagulation in those cases due to the risk of subarachnoid hemorrhage Mm -hmm. in that case. And generally, if you see an antiplatelet or an anticoagulant, that's probably the right answer in the treatment of dissection. 
The specific one, as Dr. Jasny mentioned, is still up for debate and there's still ongoing research, so it probably is not going to be tested to that degree of granularity. Lastly, I think we should round out our quick facts about vascular neurology with a discussion about intracranial hemorrhages. I think you might be saying that a lot of what we do with intracranial hemorrhages is pattern matching. Hmm. It's identifying patterns and tendencies and playing the odds. And that is an aspect of medicine that can be challenging. But a lot of what we do, so first off, we have to identify what type of hemorrhage it is. And I do think it's an important thing for somebody who's a neurology resident to review, especially if in their training, perhaps it was neurosurgery or some other service that would often initially and or primarily manage this disease state, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not the one who's in charge of managing subarachnoid hemorrhages or subdurals or ICHs, then it may be the case that you're less familiar with it clinically as well as on a test purpose. So I think it's important to be able to look at images and recognize the curvature of a subdural or the lens-shaped epidural, differentiate an arterial from a non-arterial subarachnoid hemorrhage based on pattern, location, things like that, and identify patterns of intraparenchymal hemorrhages. Intraventricular hemorrhage is also a thing, but it is very rare to have a primary intraventricular hemorrhage. Most often that's going to be an intraparenchymal hemorrhage that ruptures into the uh, CSF. But a lot of what we do is pattern matching. So Kevin, what would be a classic kind of stereotype presentation of somebody with a hypertensive hemorrhage? The hypertensive hemorrhage, it's going to come on with a pretty typical stroke syndrome. But the key thing is that we're going to see the acute hyperdensity on the CT head when we take them for imaging. And there's a few classic locations for hypertensive hemorrhage that are pretty rare for other causes. The main one to think about is the basal ganglia. As we mentioned, they're perfused by the lenticulostrite arteries, which are pretty small, and they tend to come off at right angles a lot of the time, which makes them particularly susceptible to small vessel disease, the lipohyalinosis that we like to mention. For the test-taking purposes, I think it's important to note that the putamen is specifically the basal ganglia that is most commonly associated with a hypertensive hemorrhage, but generally speaking, the basal ganglia is where you're going to see that. In the rare case that your test mentions a Charcot-Bouchard aneurysm, that is different than your aneurysms you're most often thinking of. These are these teeny tiny vessel wall problems that are associated with hypertensive hemorrhages in those deeper perforators, as Kevin was mentioning. And we talked about the lobar hemorrhages, which can be associated with cerebral amyloid angiopathy earlier. Other causes of lobar hemorrhages that we should at least think about are hemorrhagic conversion of some underlying mass or some underlying infarct. I should say that these don't necessarily have to occur in the lobar areas. They can also occur in the basal ganglia. But hemorrhagic conversion, I think, more commonly is something that we see in the cortical areas and the subcortical areas. Uh, I don't necessarily expect you might see hemorrhagic transformation as a presenting symptom, but perhaps you might have a history suggestive of a progression of somebody mm-hmm. had stroke symptoms and then developed a headache and worsening symptoms. Certainly, hemorrhage related to an underlying mass lesion is a consideration as well. What about in a younger patient? What might cause hemorrhages in different parts of the brain? What types of vascular problems might cause hemorrhages in different parts of the brain of a younger patient? You can have AV malformation or other types of vasculopathies that might be more expected to lead to bleeding in a younger person as opposed to an older person. But a direct communication between the arterial system and the venous system leads to high flow blood where it shouldn't be. 
And of course, if we're talking about primarily subarachnoid hemorrhage, we have to think about aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. We want to know typical locations of aneurysms and be able to identify those on imaging they might present to you. So if we're thinking about aneurysm locations, the saccular aneurysms that we think mm -hmm. about for subarachnoid risk tend to be more the anterior cerebral artery or the anterior communicating artery junction, the bifurcation of a middle cerebral artery, and a little bit less commonly in the posterior circulation. But any of those are certainly things you should worry about with a clinical history suggestive of subarachnoid hemorrhage, a clinical history suggestive of perhaps a sentinel bleed, or, Kevin, you might be happy to tell us about different cranial nerve problems that you might have associated with a growing aneurysm. Yeah, so I think the aneurysms that cause cranial neuropathies, it's really just a function of neuroanatomy. The most classic one that I think we can think about is one I alluded to earlier, which is where you have the posterior communicating artery aneurysm because it runs right next to the oculomotor nerve, and that'll give you that classic compressive cranial nerve 3 lesion with a down and out eye, ptosis, and importantly, a blown pupil. Important to think about compressive versus ischemic pathologies of cranial nerve 3. The main imaging finding that you'll see for a subarachnoid hemorrhage is the quote-unquote star sign when it's associated with an aneurysm rupture. We should mention that the most common cause of subarachnoid hemorrhage is just a small subarachnoid hemorrhage from a traumatic head injury. And those tend to be of different patterns. So I might see a small amount of a cortical subarachnoid hemorrhage as opposed to a subarachnoid hemorrhage throughout the basal cistern, which is what you were describing. Mm -hmm. The testable things for subarachnoid hemorrhage, I think, is that it's important to secure the aneurysm. This is where we involve neuroendovascular surgery. The two main things to do are clipping or coiling, coiling. endovascular coiling. I think coiling has just become a lot more common than clipping these days because it's much less invasive. It's important to keep good control of blood pressure, and it's very, very important to watch for vasospasm, which is the most common complication. This can present with sudden onset stroke-like symptoms if you have vasospasm that essentially causes hypoperfusion to one particular part of the brain, and if not treated, it will cause a stroke in that area. Vasospasm, for whatever reason, is a delayed response, so it typically will not happen for maybe two to three days after the bleed. I don't know what specifically might be relevant for your testing purposes, but I would say that often patients with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage are monitored in an intensive care setting for two or three weeks because of this risk of delayed vasospasm mm -hmm. or other issues such as cerebral salt wasting, things like that. They would be monitored closely. We would be looking for vasospasm, as you mentioned, uh, in addition to clinical exams that might be done with transcranial Dopplers or CT angiography, in some cases conventional angiography. And oftentimes, patient might receive nemotipine to help reduce morbidity, I believe it's been demonstrated to do. Or so calcium channel blockers, like Dr. Jasmine said, is really the mainstay of treatment. If you get yourself in vasospasm, sometimes you can do intra-arterial verapamil, I think it's the one that we use here, but I think any calcium channel blocker will work. I don't know that such a thing would specifically be tested. I believe that the existing body of evidence is greatest for oral nemotipine, and I, I wouldn't necessarily go beyond that. I think it may also be worth mentioning that there are certain scales that we might use to grade intracerebral hemorrhages, intraparenchymal hemorrhages, subarachnoids. For subarachnoid hemorrhage, you may want to be familiar with the modified Fisher scale, 
or the Hunt-Hess scale. And for intraparenchymal hemorrhages, you might want to know the ICH score or the FUNC, F-U-N-C score, FUNC score. Those are things that a lot of our registration bodies, Joint Commission, for example, might ask us to document for these patients. They can be clinically relevant, and they are pretty easily testable. All right, and I think that'll do it for our quick discussion of vascular neurology today, and I'm hoping that all of our listeners found this episode to be helpful and that this was a good review for you for topics that are likely to show up on the right exam. I'm a stroke neurologist, so I like to be quick, but I'm also a neurologist, so I can listen to myself talk. But I'm always happy to talk about these types of things. And again, there are certain things that are high yield because they're easily testable, and there are certain things that are high yield because they're clinically relevant, and those don't always overlap. But for the purposes of our test, there's a subset of things that are important to know because maybe there are rare conditions that you might be more frequently asked about than you would see in clinical practice, or because there are things that you definitely should know and they want to make sure you know or because they're things that are easy to write a test question about. And either way, I think it's all relevant and, and, and good things to know. I wanted to thank Dr. Jasney for taking the time out to join me today for this talk. And I hope all of our listeners have a lot of success with their write exams this year. Thank you so much, Kevin, and good luck to everybody. Thank you.